my family and I, we've been here at Remedy for um, about two years now, which puts us here for uh, about half the time that Remedy has been a church. And uh, we're, we're closing in on, on four years. Now, that's, that's something new that's for me and my family. Um, I have always, um, I, w- I grew up in a Christian home, so we were uh, part of uh, church pretty much all my life. In fact, uh, nine months before I was born, I was in church. So, I mean, we were, we were there. We were always in church. Some of you had that same kind of experience. Some of you hadn't. Some of you have just started attending church. But for a lot of us, when we, uh, if you grew up in church or if you've gone to church for a while, um, we, we kind of become part of, a, of an established church. And when we do that, we don't have to think about a lot of things. And what I mean by that, um, especially as related to ministry, um, as, as a church that's only four years old, uh, every year God presents us with something else, it seems, that we have to kind of think through and work through. Not in, a, not in a bad way, not like, okay, we got these problems we have to fix, but just areas of ministry that, that as God blesses us and as we grow, we kind of have to evaluate and say, okay, how are we as a church going to approach this? How has God called us to approach this? What does the scriptures tell us is important in this area for the church? And so you remember last year we went through a major um, thinking process and, and working through community groups and it was we sensed God moving us deeper and adding an element to our community groups with our uh, GCD our gospel center discipleship groups um, and so as we we came through that we thought through it we implemented it, and we've seen growth through that well now it seems one of the things that God has put before us in a in a great way is really how we as a church um, move forward to ministering, especially to children and their families. Um, we've been we've been very blessed over the several uh, past couple of years. The number of children uh, that have come with their families as as part of our fellowship. The number of babies that have been born. Um, I mean, shoot! Just when we joined the church, we added four right there, you know. And so between us and Fud, you know, we got like seventy-five kids here, you know. Um, but we, you know, but it's it's a blessing to see God add to our number uh, families, um, and so that's a that's a great thing. But with it, what we have to do is we have to say, okay, what is our call as a as a family, as a church family? How is it that we rightly understand and minister together as a family to families? So what we're going to do is over the next two weeks, uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk about this biblical view of what that looks like. Now, there's a, there's a danger as soon as I say that. The danger is many of you in this room may say, okay, I don't need to listen for the next two weeks. This isn't about me. I'm not expecting kids. My kids are grown. I'm not going to have kids. So this is for those people who have kids. Um, well, I'd like to share two passages of Scripture with you as an introduction uh, to kind of get us thinking. And uh, if that's you, I hope you'll, you'll listen with this. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
all Scripture. And if you've, if you've been a part of our times together at Remedy, you know that at this point in time during the sermons, we are, we are plowing deep into the Word of God. So this means all Scripture, and especially even the Scriptures that speak of children. For if you don't have kids or you don't think right now my life is revolved around kids, this is not a time for you to turn off and say this passage is not for me because all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. All Scripture is profitable for reproof. All Scripture is profitable for correction. And all Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. What that means is is that if we are under God's Word, no matter what topic God is addressing through His Word, that is profitable for us. It is is good for us. It is to our advantage that we would hear it and we we would listen and we would ask the Spirit that He would take this, me- this word and press it into our heart. Secondly is this, uh, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to believers here. He says, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And here's the important part. And members of the household of God. It's Ephesians 2.39. And here's why I stress that. As we talk over the next two weeks... One of the things that Fudd and I pray and hope that we will all understand is that church is not merely an organization. It's not merely a gathering of people who come together uh, once a week and hang out so they can do some things together. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we are all members of the household of God. This analogy here is that we... As a body or a family. Now in America we're very individualistic. We've we've got our families. We do our thing. And even when we come together. We don't have the super deep sense of community sometimes. And I don't think that's necessarily true here. But what I want to remind us. Is that as we move forward. We are a family. And family loves each other. And family cares for each other. And family wants the best for the family. So I would ask you that if right now you would say, okay, I don't have kids, I'm not planning on having kids, I've already had kids, please, I I beg you, this will benefit your soul greatly. I deeply believe if you will, for the next two weeks, just hang in there. Because you know what? If you're a child, this is for you. Because God wants you to know how much he loves you and how much he values you. That he would, in multiple places in the Bible, give instruction for your benefit. If you're a college-age person who's like, I don't have kids. I don't even think about having kids. God wants you to know now the beautiful wonder of what it means to help raise children. And maybe God's going to move you and put you in a place with families that you can see what this looks like. And you can walk through with them and encourage them. And they can encourage you so that one day when you do have children, you just say, man, at Remedy, I saw what that looks like. And if your kids are grown and they're out of the house, I pray that God would take and all of that wisdom and all of that experience and all that you had, good and bad, and you would understand that as a family, we need you to help us walk forward in raising our kids. And wherever stage you are in life, this is for you. 
So I pray that with that in mind, we would be able to move forward and think about it. So this is what I want to do this week. This week, what I want to do is I want to give us a, a big picture, a big picture view of maybe, maybe kind of why it's important that we think about ministering to children. And then what we'll do is next week, FUD will kind of get to some specifics. What does this look like in the home? What does this look like at Remedy Church? Um, So I'll start with big picture. FUD will get specific, and then we'll move forward. So what I'd like to do is uh, let's pray, and then I will read for us the passage we're going to be looking at today. So let's pray. Father, you are good to us, and we love your word, and we know that your word is a gift to us, so I pray, Father, that as we open it, that we would have our eyes turned to Jesus, that Holy Spirit, you would illuminate us, that we would not just hear it, but we would believe it, and then we would live it. And so, Father, would you be our guide this morning? And may we give you all glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, um, you don't own one, and you would like to have one, you can look right underneath the pew in front of you, and there should be a, uh, a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Keep it, read it, and be blessed. Um, if you just need to borrow it, borrow it, and then put it back. So, you know. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. A little context in Deuteronomy. Moses is, uh, this is, Deuteronomy is kind of Moses' last sermon to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land. Moses has already been told he is not going with them. Deuteronomy literally means Deuteronomos, the second law. It's the second. Moses kind of is giving the last part, and he's giving it to the people, um, reminding them of what God's done for them before they walk into the promised land. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to stand with me as we read God's Word. We do that here uh, because we believe God's word is true and powerful, and it's not merely man's word, but it is God's word. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Thank you. You may be seated. This passage is extremely, extremely important. When Jesus in Matthew 22 was asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment, the most overarching, the most important one? The Pharisees would argue, they said there were 613 commandments given in the Old Testament. And they would argue over which one was the most important. They came up and they asked Jesus, which commandment in the Old Testament is the most important? Jesus, without hesitation, Quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
So if Jesus says that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself are, is the most important and the second most important, and he says all of the law and the prophets hang on those two. If Jesus says this, then this passage is really important for us to listen to. It's really important. And so what we want to do is we want to look as Moses is now taking in Deuteronomy chapter 5. He's given the Ten Commandments again. He's reminded them of the Ten Commandments. And really kind of what follows is an exposition of the Ten Commandments, an explanation. This is what they look like. And so as you read Deuteronomy, what you find is Moses is showing what it looks like to believe God and follow his commandments. And right here is part of the exposition of remembering the first commandment, which is, you should have no other gods before me. You should have no other gods before me. And Moses goes on to explain it. And what I would like to do is I'd like to just pull out three things for us to look at this morning. First thing is this. Love for God is the natural outflow of the gospel. Love for God is the natural outflow of the gospel. Look at what he says here, in starting in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This passage is known to Jews as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It's the first word in the passage. Pious Jews will say the Shema on, in the morning and in the evening. This statement is the statement of Judaism. It is their confession of faith. It is extremely important to them. And notice what it says. It really kind of has two things. It starts out with truth about God. It starts with his name, the Lord. And you'll notice in your Bible that Lord, in many of your Bibles, Lord there is written in all caps. What you find is that is the holy name of God. Okay? And when the Jews so revered the name of God that when they would come across it in the scriptures, they would not even pronounce it. They would just say the word Lord because they were worried that they might mispronounce it or they might say it wrong or they might not revere it the right way. And so instead of even saying his name, they would just say the Lord. And so what you have here is it's not just a God, this is Yahweh, the self-sufficient one, the one who revealed himself to Moses as the I am. I am that I am. I need nothing. I have nothing that is not mine. All is mine. All that I need is within me. I don't need anything. I am self-sufficient. I am here. He's the one who was in the burning bush. He's the one who brought the plagues on Pharaoh. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who came down on Sinai and gave the commandments. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. And he starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And notice what it says about him. He is one. The Hebrew here is not so much one to disclude the Trinity as it is unity. Because what we find here, this, the word for one is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 that says when a man and woman come together, they are one flesh. This idea here, whether excluding the Trinity, actually makes way for the concept of the Trinity because God is unity. He is the creator. 
He is God. There is none like him. He doesn't reveal himself in different ways. He's not part of other gods. Nobody else worships him. This is the one true God. And notice what it says. There's personal wording. He is our God. You shall love the Lord, your God. Now let this rest on you for just a second. The God, the one true God was theirs. And we know that through the death of Christ, we too are now co-heirs with the people of God. We have been adopted into his family. Ephesians 3, 6 says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why is that important? Now we too reach out and say, this is our God. And so this thing that was said to Israel is said to us here, church, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the result of the fact that He is ours, that He belongs to us, we belong to Him. This one true God is not far off. He's not something that has to be trying to figure it out and we got to try to find some way to just kind of know about Him. He is ours. And the natural outflow of that is right here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And what we find here is that this effect of knowing God as ours moves us to love God. It's the natural outpouring of being connected with God. He says you should love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this really is the fullness of our being. It is our mind, it is our emotions, it is our wills, it is our bodies. You know, sometimes we connect the love of God simply with just a mental thing or a feeling. I feel something towards God, therefore I love Him. That's part of it. I know things about God that excite me, and that's part of it. But true love of God moves from just being in our mind and in our heart. It flows through our actions. You see, obedience there is connected to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. When we know God, we are moved to love Him. But then also notice this. Love for God is kindled through His Word. Because this is what happens. Look at verse 6. Moses commands to love God. And then verse 6, this is what he says. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, it's not a coincidence that we begin loving God with our heart, and now the commands of God are written on our heart. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The natural outflowing of love for God is obedience to God. It is just natural. Love God resulting, results in obedience to God. Now, let's, let's just be honest here. Sometimes people have taken this and twisted it and have gotten the wrong way. I'm going to be obedient to God because I'm afraid of Him. Or I'm going to be obedient to God because I'm worried that I won't get to heaven. Or I'm going to be obedient to God because I'm wanting to love me more. Or I'm going to be obedient to God so that everybody will think I'm great. We can twist what God has said, but what we cannot deny is that if we love Him, we will be obedient to Him. 
we will see his words and see them not as a way to earn anything, but as a response to the beauty of the love of God for us. I, I told somebody this, um, this past week when I was speaking to some students, I love my kids. I love them. Noah's birthday is on Thursday. So I'm, we're going to get him presents. That's not just because I have to, or I'm worried he's going to stop loving me if I don't give him presents. I'm excited to do that. And as I love him, I'm going to do something for him. And what we find is that if we love God, we obey his commands, and that is kindled by putting his commands on our heart. Because here's the question. Okay, I love God. How do I express that? How do I show that? How does that evident in my life? And Jesus gives us the answer in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So God, I love you. I want to do the things that please you. God, I love you. I want to do the things that reflect to the world your greatness. God, I love you. I I want to display that. And I don't want to do the things that are against you, that are opposed to you, that reflect not you but sinfulness. God, show me what that looks like. And God in his graciousness has given us his word to move us in that direction. So what we see is that the gospel moves us to love God and then the gospel gives us an outlet to be obedient and to show our love. And now some of you are sitting out there and saying, okay, now wait just a second. I thought this sermon was about kids. I thought the sermon was about like, you know, how we relate to kids. All you're doing is you're just talking about the gospel and love for God. The gospel is the foundation of everything. But if Jesus said what we just talked about is the greatest commandment, then it is very significant when we read verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. I just want to rest for just a second right there. This most important command in the entire Old Testament, God gives it and then immediately, the first thing he says after this is, you shall teach this to your children. That should knock you over. Because that's what it did to me this week. I went to this passage because I was like, okay, when you talk about kids, I know Deuteronomy 6 has something to do to kids. And so as I, was, as I was working through this, it just blew me away the importance that God places on teaching the truth about who he is and his commandments to children. And you know what? This really goes against the grain in our culture right now. Because this is what our culture says. Our culture says, okay, you can teach kids some things, but you don't need to, you don't need to push on them what you believe. You don't need, to, you don't need to, to make them think things. You just need to kind of give them some ideas and then just set them free to make their own decisions. That's not what God says. God says, you need to love me with everything you've got, and then the first thing you need to do is you need to pour that into your children. You need to diligently give this to your children. And should I say that if we as a church want to be obedient, then we've got to understand what does this look like. Because if God places this kind of importance on it, this this has got to be important for us as well.
So then my next thing I would like to share with you then is God expects us to pour both, that is, the gospel and his word into children. God expects that. God declares who he is, calls... God's declaration of who he is calls for full-throttled obedience. And immediately he says... Give this to children. And he does it, and he doesn't just say, let's do it in small detail. Let's look at what he says. He says we need to teach it, okay? Teach it diligently over and over and over and over and over again. And, and if you don't have any experience trying to teach children, I mean, maybe, maybe my kids are different than yours, but, you know, just saying something one time, it doesn't quite... Uh, doesn't quite make it happen. And all the parents in the room started laughing. Would you teach anything to your kids? I mean, I mean, think about just telling your kids to say please. How many times do you have to remind a child just to say please? You see, kids are not born loving God. They're not born knowing everything about God. They're not born immersed in the mysteries of the Father. And we have the privilege of sharing with them and revealing the greatness of God. And we know that this is primarily through the home. Primarily, God's plan is that parents have the privilege of instilling the beauty, the significance, the depth, and the majesty of God in their kids. Look at what he says. You're going to teach them diligently. You're going to talk of it when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. This is not just something where you can say, once a week, my kids are going to learn about God, and we're good. God doesn't say just a one-time Sunday school class. God says that when you pour this into your kids, this has got to be the air which your family breathes. So when you're at home, you're talking about it. When you're driving in the car, you're talking about it. When you're going somewhere, you find ways to talk about it. In the mornings, you're talking about it. At night, you're talking about it. It is what your home does. And I'm going to be honest with you. In some ways, it's exhausting. And I know that some of you out there are parents right now. And what you're thinking is, I just, I've tried so hard. I just, you know, we try to do family devotions and I try to find ways. And it's like the kids are bouncing off the wall and they don't listen. And one minute they get it and the next minute it's like they don't get it. And I just, just, I don't think that I can do this. And God encourages you, be diligent. Keep on press on god has not set you up for failure god has not given you this command just to beat you down and show you what a failure you are god says you keep going you keep pressing you keep fighting and you diligently do this because hey let's just be honest doesn't god diligently keep putting his word into us and don't we see ourselves changing and becoming more like Christ. And so God says, this has got to be diligent. This has got to be you plugging away. Hard times, 
easy times, the times the kids get it and you just want to dance on the roof because it's like, yes, they get it. And the times where you want to bury them under the house because you're like, oh my goodness, don't you get it? All of those times, God says, keep going, keep going, keep going. But then also, he doesn't just say to teach it. He also says for us to model it. Because look in verse 8. He says, you shall bind them on a sign on your hand and be frontless between your eyes. He's still talking about the commands. He's still talking about the words. So much so that everywhere you look at, everything you do with your hands, all of life should be affected by the commands of God. This is wholehearted obedience. The gospel doesn't call us to be nice people and come to church on Sunday and carry big Bibles. The gospel calls all of life to be affected. And if we're going to teach it diligently, we've got to do more than just express it with our mouths. We have to live it with our lives. And parents, you more than anybody, your kids will see your weaknesses. They'll see the times that you model the gospel and they'll see the times that you don't model the gospel. And in times that you don't model the gospel, you have an opportunity to model the gospel by confessing and saying, I messed up. I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have done. And man, I need Jesus. Would you forgive me? Because I've asked Jesus to forgive me. And even right there in your failure to model the gospel, you're modeling the gospel. But can I tell you something? If you don't have kids, or if your kids have gone and maybe you've not thought about it, this is exhausting. And God didn't design just for our children to see the gospel in their parents alone. Yes, it is primary. It is of utmost importance. It is the ultimate responsibility for parents to pour the gospel in. But did you notice what he said? Hero Israel. We'll talk about this a little more in a minute. But it's not just for parents to model the gospel. Children need other people modeling the gospel for them. Children need to see other adults who love Jesus. Children need to see other people who will teach them the same things that mommy and daddy are already teaching them home. They need people who will do that for them. Whether it's people who babysit them. Whether it's people who take them to the park and play with them. Whether it's aunts, uncles, friends of the family, older people, younger people. Imagine a child so immersed in all of these people, all these different ages, all loving and following Jesus. That's part of God's plan for the whole thing. And as a church, we've got to rally around that. It's very important. But then also the last thing is that it's got to be displayed So there's a difference between modeling and and displaying. Modeling is really that living out, and and the display is just the apparentness of it. It's it's obvious. And he says two things, and and, um, I got super excited about this last night because I just thought it was amazing. As I was studying over, it felt like the Spirit just kind of showed me something that I hadn't seen. Verse 9, it says, You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, I... I'm going to be honest with you, every time I've read this before, I've always, I've always thought very American about this. And so I think like doorpost of your house and then the gate outside your yard. And this is kind of what I thought. So it's like this still, it's just talking about home. And I think the doorpost here is talking about the home, but the thing that hit me about it 
And I did a search to see if I was really off base with this. And when I did the search, it was even more amazing. The Hebrew term for doorpost here has been used earlier in the Pentateuch, in the book of Exodus. If you remember, when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, during the last plague, God gave a command. You take a lamb, you just slay the lamb, and you put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. Same word. It's not a common word. It's not used a whole lot in the Old Testament. And there, as they were to cover the doorpost of their home, their home was covered and death passed over. It reminded me of a passage in 2 Timothy where Paul's writing to Timothy, and this is what he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how, here you go, From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Our desire as parents must be more than having good kids, than having well-behaved kids, than having kids can grow up and get a good job and take care of us when we get old. It's got to be more than our kids wouldn't be a nuisance. It has got to be that from our childhood, our children would know the scriptures that make them wise unto salvation. And so as we write the commands of God on our doorpost, they point us to Jesus, the one whose blood takes away our sin and saves us from death. May it be that our homes are covered with the word of God that point us to Jesus and that the sacred task given to parents would be that we would love our children well and the greatest way we can love them is to pour into them the truth about God. Remember I told you I looked at this in kind of a very western way because there's the gates. You see in the Hebrew way of thinking the gates wasn't their yard. The gates were for the city. This word that is to be over causing and spurring on love for God wasn't just to be a personal family thing. This was to be a community thing. This was to be the reflection, the, what that community was known for. And I told you earlier, we, we are a family. And I've said it already and I'll say it again. Those of us that are parents, we need you. We need you. Because we understand the task that God has laid before us, the privilege that God has given us as, as parents to raise our children in such a way that they might know Jesus. We understand that God didn't just give that to us, that also our family has a major impact on our kids. I got, I got a, um, I love my job. I, I'm the, I get to be the campus minister for Baptist Collegiate Ministry. I love my job. I love it. And can I tell you what one of the absolute best parts of my job is? That my kids think that college students who love Jesus are their friends. And I don't say like think that like because they don't really like my kids. Like 
college students who love Jesus are in the life of my kids. And so now I get to tell them when they're, where, where's Tyler? Where's Josh? Where's Ruth this summer? Well, you know what? They went to another part of the world to people who don't know Jesus because they understand that people there need to know Jesus. And all kinds of things like that. They know that these people that they look up to are going and are living and are following Jesus. But can I tell you, that also happens within our church. They see people, they know people who love Jesus. And so they get up and talk and they surround them and they hear this going on in their lives and they see This isn't just mommy and daddy. God has called this out of all other kinds of people. And these people love me and they take care of me. And they want me to know God too. You see, that's why for our our remedy kids, preschool and nursery age, we don't babysit. You see, we want to provide a place where parents who have those young children like that can, can leave them and they will be cared for and they can come and have their souls refreshed and they can meet with Jesus and they can be charged up and move forward to continue the noble and glorious sacred task that God has put for them. But you know what? When kids are in nursery, they're not just being babysat. You know, every week they have a Bible lesson Every week, they're doing this thing called the Gospel Project, where they take a story from the Old Testament, they learn the story, and at the end, they connect it to Jesus. Just last week, Josiah came home. Hey, Daddy, you know what Moses told Pharaoh? Let go of my people. It's the best thing. I loved it. I said, that's right. And then they go, and they tell me that somebody told them truths from the Bible and told them how it connected to Jesus. Can I tell you how awesome that is? To know that people love my kids enough to tell them about God? That's amazing. And can I tell you that some of you right now, you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this? That's a great opportunity right there. You want to start being obedient to this? I don't have kids. I don't have any way to pour in. Maybe once a month you could just say, hey, I can read a lesson to two and three-year-olds. Most of them won't ask you where God came from and those really super deep theological questions that you're afraid of. But they actually will like the color of the picture. And when you can take and talk about the people who are in the picture, then you could take that one sentence that points it to Jesus And be a part of building up the wall in their heart that they might step up and see God. It is the scriptures that make us wise for salvation. And then one day, when they place their faith in Christ, and you see them submerged in the waters of baptism, God will bring to your mind that you were part of that. You were faithful. Don't brush that off. Sometimes you think, oh yeah, I mean, come on, they're two. At that point in time, or they're babies, 
What about the people who are sitting with the babies, showing them this beautiful little picture card, and already, before they're even a year old, telling them, God loves you. God sent Jesus so that we can know God. How beautiful is it that we, as a church, can come alongside parents and say, we love you, we're a family, and we want to be a part of what God's doing in the life of your child. So I'll take one Sunday, one morning, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes if Jack and Fudd get long-winded, and we'll pour into your child. We'll tell them that we love God and that God loves them. So there's three things I want to leave you with as we, as we end. Three questions just want you to think about. If I can get this thing to do right. First one is this. How are you currently investing in the lives of children? How are you currently investing in the lives of children? Now for some of you, that one's easy. Because you got them. They're right there. You're like, oh my goodness, what am I doing that's not investing in lives of children? I, I know, you're, you're there. So, but some of you, I want to ask you, are you investing in the lives of children? Second question is real similar. How are you currently investing in the lives of parents? Some of you are parents. But maybe you're a parent and you've, you've been a parent for a while. And you know that there are some families here who are really about to have that first child. As part of their church family, are you coming alongside? Or, or could you even be willing to say, you know what, I want to invest in lives of children and, and, and parents. I just want to, I want to take care of their kids and love them for once a month for an hour and a half. Last one is this. How are you currently expressing your love to God through obedience? How are you currently expressing your love to God through obedience? Um, if, if you are interested in being a part of, of um, sharing the gospel with children and teaching the truth about God, on the info table there's an application and fill that out, give it to me, give it to Carrie, give it to Fudd. We'll be contacting you about that. We're, we're about to move into the, uh, our taking of the Lord's Supper. And as I was thinking about the connection to the Lord's Supper and uh, this sermon, um, our our taking of the supper is, is obedience. Christ commanded his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. We, we are commanded to do it. And so if we love him, we're going to keep his commands. But here's how I want you to, to kind of approach the supper this morning. Here's how I want you to kind of approach it. Jeremiah 31, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God says there's, there's a new covenant needed because my people have broken the covenant. And then Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, says this. He says, the book of Luke says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying to them, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. You see, when we, when we take of the supper, we are remembering that God made a new covenant. Not by writing laws on stone that just demanded obedience, but by giving His Son that we might be brought near to Him and have His law written on our hearts so that those commands could be a response of love. And so, as we, as we approach the table, as we say always, if you have placed your faith in Christ... You're a member of the new covenant family. You have trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins to make things right between you and God. If you have done that, we invite you to come to the table and participate. If that's not you, if you're not a follower of Christ, we, we're, we're glad that you're here, but we ask that you wouldn't participate. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this morning, as we have a, a time of examination, in, in staying with the theme of, of our love of God being, being shown in our obedience, the, I want to just... Um, give you two passages of Scripture. First one is one we've said a couple times this morning. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I'd like for you to take a moment and, and examine your heart and ask the Lord to show you, is there anywhere in your life where there's willful disobedience, where your life is not surrendered to the gospel? Ask Him to show that to you and reveal it that you might confess it before we go to the table. So do that now.